0: John chapter 19, beginning in verse 25. Westside, hear the words of the Lord. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son and then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home this is the word of the lord you can you can be seated Hey, Westside, I'm so excited this morning. Um, Our leaders, our board members, our volunteers, um, our hearts are full um, from this weekend that we have had a group of guys come in from a family of churches called the Grace Family Churches that have led and trained our board and our volunteers and started a conversation as to what does it maybe look like to be a family member in the Grace Churches. And uh, Mr. Ben Hardman is going to be preaching for us today. And uh, I've had the opportunity to know Ben for a couple of years now ben has been a sort of a pastoral coach for me um coach me through uh the pandemic and everything that was going on so if i made any poor choices as a pastor you can meet him out in the lobby and discuss any of those with him but listen um ben loves jesus loves god's word and i'm so excited for him to speak into the life of our church so west side could you please welcome mr ben hardman
1: thank you thanks jason Uh, I it's so good to be here with you guys. I've I've gotten to hang out with Jason and Tyler. I've got such a fondness for them You guys have an amazing team here at Westside. Yeah, they're they're incredible Uh, And and I got to hang out yesterday with your board and some leaders and it was just amazing to be with you guys and so fun and uh, yeah, if uh, Jason messes things up you guys can call me I (laughs) I, I, it's like I'm not getting enough calls from my church right now, so I need them from other people's churches uh, for those kinds of things. I am, uh, I'm a pastor. Uh, the church is Grace Marietta, uh, right outside of Atlanta, the first suburb north of Atlanta. I was just watching. Our service just ended, and I was watching it live. That's one of the fun things about the pandemic, is I can actually watch what's going on there when I'm not there. And so I watch my church family there. Uh, we've got a picture of my actual family. That's my family there. Uh, I was getting texts from them uh, about what's going on today. Yesterday was soccer day. There was lots of fun things going on on the soccer field. My youngest, Claire, lost her soccer game pretty badly. Uh, and so I was getting updates of she's doing bad, the team's doing bad. Uh, my, old, my son, Caden, the tall one there, is a basketball player. He had a basketball game yesterday and did all right. And then my oldest son, Cole, bought a car yesterday. Which is pretty cool. So uh, I missed all of that. And that's my beautiful wife, Sarah. She's amazing. But, but I haven't been traveling. So since the pandemic, I, I, this is kind of the first trip I've taken in like a year. And it's the first time I've been away from these guys in over a year. And there's something weird about not being with them. And so there's been like this weekend, there's been more texting back and forth. My kids have texted me. Like, they don't do that when I'm home. They don't actually try and talk to me when I'm home. But apparently when I'm gone, they want to connect with me and tell me everything that's going on in their life. And so we've been texting back and forth, and I've missed them and love them. But I want to talk about family today. Uh, and I want to talk about the family that we're born into and the family that we choose to become. Uh, And our church family in Marietta has been looking at the last words of Jesus. As we prepare for Easter, we've been looking at the seven kind of phrases that Jesus speaks on the cross, knowing that each of those statements are significant because at the end of your life, the things that you say to the ones that you love are the most important things. You don't say insignificant things at the end of your life to the people that you love, you don't say, hey, lean in close. You don't call your kids to your bedside and have everybody lean in and say, my favorite color is blue. You don't say, you know what, I really love Chick-fil-A. You, you say the important things. I asked a hospice nurse recently to tell me, like some, what, are, what are the phrases that you hear? What are the things that you see at the end of people's lives? And she sent me this beautiful quote. She said, they talk about the love they felt and the love they gave. They often talk about the love they didn't receive or the love they didn't know how to offer. The love they withheld or maybe the love they never felt that they should have received because they didn't know how to love unconditionally. They talk about how they learned what love is and what love is not. And they talk about what they love and what they regret. But most of all, they say the things they always wanted to say but couldn't find the words for. Isn't that beautiful? At the end of our life, we say the things that matter to the people that matter the people that matter the most. And I don't know that Jesus was at a point on the cross where he was struggling to come up with the words to say. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what was going on. But in this moment, in John chapter 19, there's this beautiful moment where he's speaking the words that he wants to declare, not just to Mary and Mary and Mary, right? Not just to the people that are there at the cross, but also to us, the church, He's speaking to us today the words that matter the most. And so John 19, verse 25, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple who he loved standing nearby, he said to to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And here's what's happening in this moment. Jesus is simultaneously stirring things up in heaven and stirring things up on earth. I think about the beauty of what's happening in heaven as heaven is awaiting the resurrection. In just a few short hours, the temple veil is going to be torn. The earthquake is going to hit. Heaven is going to begin to celebrate because the countdown has started for Easter Sunday. There is monumental things happening in heaven right now. The awaited moment where God is putting his family back together again through his son Jesus is happening. And so everything's being stirred up. Heaven is awaiting for this moment. But Jesus isn't just thinking as as fully God. He's thinking fully man in this moment as well. And so he's thinking about his mother who he loves. It's what all of us do at the end. We think about how do we take care of the people that we love? We want to make sure that they have what they need. We want to make sure they have the resources. We want to make sure they're cared for and loved and protected. And in this culture, in a Roman culture, a woman already has very few rights. And the woman of a crucified son has less. Because it's the most shameful thing that you can experience in the Roman culture is this idea of crucifixion. And so there's this... Shame that comes with this. There's this loss of standing in society and culture. It's a predatory culture where men would prey on innocent women who could not have the rights or the ability to get jobs, to to raise themselves above their station, to do anything. And so Jesus is looking at his mother, knowing what the crucifixion is actually going to do for her, and he wants to take care of her. He wants to make sure. That she's taken care of. Here's what Jesus is doing. His whole life, Jesus was always creating a new family. He shows up on the shore and starts calling his disciples to follow him and to create a new family, to leave the families that they have and step into a new family. And now at the end of his life, as his family is destroyed by the power of the empire, the control, the worst instincts of humanity that exist by torturing an innocent man, as all of these things are falling apart, he's still thinking about forming another new family. Walter Bergaman says this, his execution destroyed his family as executions by empires always do, so he had to make a new family. And he makes a new family between a father. And a son. But what's left unsaid in all of Jesus' words is I'm gonna be gone. And so I need a new family to exist. I need a new family to rise up. And that family would later be called the church. It's who we are today. It's who my community is in Grace, in, in Grace Marietta, in Marietta, Georgia. It's this group of people who believe that they're actually the family of God, that God is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and that they're all brothers and sisters because they're united in Christ. What's fun when I get to travel to places like this is I start to realize that I actually have more in common with you guys who are here. In, I'm a city boy. Right? They tried to take me shooting and horseback riding and tried to get me to wear boots and belts. And I, 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 I don't know any of that stuff. I, I, I know the Bible. I can do that a little bit, but, but in, in the middle, of the, I have more in common with you guys who are my brothers and sisters in Christ than I do with some of my neighbors who live right next door to me, because we're the family of God. Let's rewind a little bit in Jesus' life. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 verse 46, Jesus's ministry is just getting launched in this moment. And Jesus is preaching in in a room maybe just like this. There's, There's people gathered and outside the front door, Jesus's family shows up. And here's why Jesus's family shows up. Because they believe he's crazy. They're like, no, this guy, this is just Jesus, our son. Like, please don't, I imagine the sanctuary being full, right? Can you imagine this right now? Can you imagine this room's completely full, packed out, everybody's listening to me to preach and Debbie and Gary Hardman show up in the back from Dayton, Ohio with my sister Leah. And they're like, hey guys, you need to stop listening to him. <laughs> Can we, They're knocking on the door, they're trying to get somebody. And this is how it sets up. So verse 46, it says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. That's just funny to me. Hey, can we talk to the guy who's talking? That's what they're saying. Can we talk to the guy who's preaching? Like, that's our son. You guys don't understand. He's crazy. Don't listen to him. This kind of thing. They're gathered back there. And then he went, this is how Jesus replied. But he replied to the man who told him this. He said, who is my mother and who is my brother? And stretching out his hands towards everybody in the room and towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and here is my brother. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's the same thing he says on the cross this is your mother, this is your brother, this is your family. He's pointing to a new family. And in doing this, Jesus isn't devaluing the nuclear family. He's lifting up the church family. There's another moment where somebody comes to him and Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. He says, my father died. I got to go take care of all the arrangement. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. What he's doing is he's not devaluing the family that we're born into. He's calling us to become the, the, the church. He's saying, listen, you're born into a family. You don't get to choose that. You don't get to decide that. You're just born into a family and you're stuck with them. But then there's the people that you choose to do life with. There's the people that you choose to sit at their tables and eat meals. There's the people that you choose to commune with, to work with, to love each other, to care for each other, to watch each other's kids, to help each other out, to stand with one another in the gap when difficult things and challenging things are happening. And Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father is my family. They're my family. It was one year ago, last week, that the NCAA tournament got canceled. I don't know if anybody else in this room was as devastated as I was in that moment. Anybody, you, any basketball fans? I, I honestly, at that time, I was, you were hearing about the pandemic, right? You were hearing about the virus, you were hearing about all these things that were going on, and I was like, yeah, we'll be fine. And then they canceled basketball, and I was like, oh no, this is terrible. The world's falling apart, right? This is the worst thing that's ever happened. It's my God-given right to watch basketball in March. Can I get an amen? And, and in that moment, it, it, it just hit us all of a sudden that there's something going on that's painful and hard. And, and this has been a year, are you with me? It's been painful. And I don't know that there's been a time in my lifetime where there's been a collective trauma in our culture the way that there has been in the last year. There's been seasons where like a group of people are hurting or some people over here are struggling or some people over here are wounded. But in this year, it feels like all of us have wounds. All of us have hurts. All of us have pain. And not only do you take the, the, the trauma and the hardship of the virus and all the things that have come with it, you take the racial tension, you take the political tension, you take the anger and the frustration where everybody's fighting and everybody's arguing and social media looks like a war zone. Right, I just I show up on social media to look at did somebody eat lasagna this week, and somebody's throwing grenades at me. Right, I got, it's this. Pay, everybody's just arguing and fighting, and there's this pain that's going on. And this year, uh, you know what the leading cause of death is for people under the age of thirty? It's not COVID. It's not cancer. It's not car accidents. It's suicide. Loneliness has become the epidemic to go along with our pandemic. Because in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the hurt, in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of all this difficulty, when everybody's fighting and arguing, what happens is people feel isolated and alone. And, and people have, have a hard time healing if we're not actually in community. Robert Storlow has this insightful definition of trauma. He said this, trauma is when severe emotional pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. It's not just that there's emotional pain. It's not just that there's woundedness. It's just not that there's hardship that we've been through. It's that there's no relational home to take that. There's no place to go back. Social psychologist James Pennebaker conducted the first large-scale study of trauma survivors many years ago. And his goal was to determine why some people experience suffering, pain, trauma, disappointment, and can never recover, and others can And so he started to decide, like, what is the common denominator between the people who walk through hurt and pain and trauma and woundedness and and, and experience breakthrough on the other side and find joy again in their life and the people who can never find that? You know what he said? The one differentiating factor between the people who heal and the people who don't is the relationships that they have. It's the people that sit at their table every week. It's the people that bless them and serve them and speak good news over them. It's the people that care for them. It's the people that love them. It's the people that walk beside them each week. The difference is a relational family. That's the difference. And you could make a case that there has never been a moment in my lifetime. I'm 46 years old, and I don't know that there's ever been a moment in my lifetime where Jesus needs to look at the church more and look all of us in the eyes and say, this is your mother, this is your brother. Look around the room, this is your family. We need each other right now. Maybe more than any other time in my lifetime, we need each other. And it's so disappointing for me and so hard for me. I coach pastors every single week. And so I do Zoom calls where I've got pastors from all over the country and we're doing coaching and talking about their life. And they're all so lost and frustrated and having such a difficult season because the church, right now, in a divided world, has chosen to take the posture of the world and fight for continued division rather than unify around the love of Christ. We need to check in on one another. We need to bless and serve one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to call out the best in one another. We need to sharpen each other. We need to urge each other on. We need to speak love and grace to one another. We need patience and kindness with one another. And we need the church to begin to look at each other and say, this is actually my family. And so I'm going to love you as if you're the family. John Mark Comer, uh, a pastor and writer from the West Coast, says this. He says, if I'm reading Jesus and the New Testament authors correctly, they're calling us as followers of Jesus to be the relational home for one another. They envisioned a church as a family, not a perfect community by any means, but one where we suffer through the world of sin together, where we come together to banish loneliness from our hearts and hold each other's pain in love. Of course, all families are dysfunctional. It's just a question of degree. And one of the great tragedies of the past year, and in my opinion, one of the greatest tactics of the enemy, has been that the church was often just as divided and hostile as the world. We cannot pretend otherwise. And for a growing number of Christians, particularly young people, and especially in individualistic western cities, the church is no longer their relational home, and often it isn't for good reason. Maybe because the church has been structured more like a concert than a family dinner. Maybe because the church has been a place of wounding more than healing. And for that, all I can say is I'm sorry. Uh, If you've been hurt by the church, I get it. And can I be honest with you? I've been hurt by the church more this year than any year of my life. I've gotten nasty emails sent to me on the weekly. I've gotten people that have left our church and said terribly unfair things about me and my family. I've had people who I thought were my friends and were my family who have completely ghosted us and just disappeared. It's been a hard season for all of us. And the temptation is to lash out. The temptation is to fight. The temptation is to believe that we have to agree on absolutely everything or we can't be in relationship with one another. When the truth is, Jesus calls us to a completely different way of living. So I want to give us three pieces of good news as we wrap up today. The first is this. We believe that God is not finished with his church. Can I get an amen? Amen. He's not done. And I love the church for what it is today. But I think what the church could be is the most beautiful thing in the world. The church as it is supposed to be. As the family of God who is loving each other and loving their community, laying down our lives for our friends like Jesus taught us, sacrificially loving, caring for one another, serving and blessing, looking for the least and the lost, looking for the broken and the hurting, and inviting them all into this place is beautiful. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is irresistible to a world that is is lost in loneliness, for a world that is in isolation, a world that is in trauma, a world that is hurting, a world that is wounded, and a world that is pain in, in pain, we have to become the relational home. And we've got to sort out our own nonsense before we can welcome the world in. And so I love the church. I think it's beautiful, but it's flawed. And the possibilities of what it could be are amazing. John Tyson has started using this word. He says, what the churches in our country need right now are fiercely loyal warriors. I love that idea. People who are fiercely loyal to God, to his word, Fiercely loyal to each other. Fiercely loyal to the leaders that are leading them. Fiercely loyal to say, we're going to be family. And we're going to walk through this together. And we're going to love each other. And we're going to care for each other. And and, and we're not going to figure everything out. And we're not going to agree on everything. And that's okay. We may have voted for different people. We may have different views about this issue or this issue or all of those things. But we're going to stand together as one and we're going to be a family. Fiercely loyal warriors. I love that image. Every pastor I talk to, that's good news right now. People who are fiercely loyal to each other, we're going to stand together. Last weekend, we had a, a, a seminar at my church, and we gathered people together on Friday night and on Saturday. And, and Atlanta right now is amazing. In the summer, it's too hot. In, in, in the winter, it's, I don't know what it is in the winter. It's 30 degrees one day and 90 degrees the next. We, you just don't know what you're going to get. And, and, but right now, It's gorgeous in my town. And so last Saturday, there was this, it was a beautiful day, like the the most beautiful day we've had in like a year. And we just built a park next to our church. And so right next to our property, kind of right outside the door, you can look out the windows of our church and you can see a, a new playground and a new basketball court, and a new pavilion. And there's this beautiful space that we're able to gift to the community and say, hey, here's a space for you. We love you. And, and, and as Saturday was happening, we, we brought everybody together up front and we did this kind of spiritual gifts kind of thing where people started naming their kingdom dreams and started naming, this is the thing that I think God has made me for and this is the thing that God's equipped me for. And they all came up and they named their kingdom dream and then everybody prayed over them. And then everybody said, I see that in you. You can do it. Like, I believe in you. The dream that's in your heart that God gave you, you can do it. And they were urging each other on and encouraging one another and laying hands on one another and praying for one another. And I was walking outside, and there's all these groups gathered, like sitting in different spots around the church, and there's kids playing on the basketball courts, and and there's people sitting in the pavilion, and there's little ones playing on the playground. And I was like, yes, I believe in this. This is what the church should be. There are people in our community who may never sit in our pews who are being loved by people from our church. The church can be amazing and beautiful. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 says to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. God who created all things, listen to this verse 10. So that through the church, through the family of God, this is the delivery method that God has come up with. This is the way that God wants to share the good news to the world. This is the way his truth is going to be communicated. He says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and to the authorities and to the heavenly places. Through the church, through the way that we love each other, through the unification of our hearts, through the way that we invite people to our tables, the way that we care for one another, through the fruits of the Spirit, when, we, when we're kind, when we forgive, when we show grace, when we show mercy, when we pour out ourselves for the lives of others. This is how the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the world. And I believe that was true when Paul wrote it. And I believe it's true today. That the hope of the world is that we have a Savior, we have a Lord in Jesus, we have a Father in heaven, we have brothers and sisters around one another, and we can live as if the kingdom has already come. We can belong to a different place than right here. I don't think we need new ideas, I don't think we need new methodologies, I don't think we need new tactics or new templates. I think we need churches that actually love the world. Like honestly, guys, I don't know that you need a billion more sermons. I don't need know that you need a bunch more worship services. I think if you want to impact Poplar Bluff, ask God to break your heart for the people of Poplar Bluff. Ask God to teach you to love the people that are sitting next to you like they're your family. Ask God to teach you how to lay down your life for your friends. Let's get that together first, and then let's go into the world and see what happens. I think if you can mobilize a church to love, you can can do amazing and incredible things. And in the middle of all the stress and all the hurt and all of these things, a healthy family is really good news to a lonely world. The second piece of good news is we believe that that, that what we can do together is greater than what we can do alone. I had, a, I had a person from our church come up to me over the weekend and, and she said, I love the church. I love this church because we follow the Holy Spirit and we go where God leads us and we do what God asks us to do. And then she said, I hate this church because we follow the Holy Spirit and because we go where God leads us and do what he calls us to do. And she was naming this tension of I love it that we follow Jesus. I love it that Jesus is our model. I love it that we take serious the call of the Holy Spirit on our everyday lives, but it's hard. It's hard to love an unlovable world. It's hard to love somebody that's shouting at you. It's hard to care for a friend who doesn't want your care. All of these things are difficult. And so we press in and we keep standing beside one another. I had lunch this week with a friend from my church, uh, Julian, and Julian called me and said, hey, can we have tacos? And any time the word tacos comes out, the, the word for me is yes and amen. Right? And so I'm, I'm 100% down for tacos anytime. time. And so I, I meet Julian at this taco place, and, and, and Julian's this young man who's been helping in our student ministry. He's really loved on my kids well. Uh, he's a model and an actor. And he, 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 he sat with me, and, and, and about a year ago, When the pandemic was just kind of rising up, he and I sat down and we started praying and we started co-discerning because he was thinking like, I'm not sure there's going to be jobs in Atlanta for me. I might have to move to L.A. And so he's talking about, is it a better career move for me to move to Los Angeles and will there be more acting jobs and modeling jobs and those kinds of things in, in that place than there is in Atlanta because the Atlanta market's smaller than the L.A. market. And so he told me, like, it makes sense for my career to move to L.A. And so we're eating, we're having tacos, and we had prayed about it, and he obviously decided not to move to L.A. And, and we're, as we're sitting there, he said this, and I, I, I wrote it down. He said, I've been on the cover of 15 major magazines. I've had a role on three network TV shows. I was just in my second Coca-Cola commercial, and I still see myself as a depressed little kid who doesn't fit in anywhere. And he said, the reason I stayed in Atlanta is because my church family tells me that's not who I am. This is a perfect example of what we're talking about. He chose to sacrifice career, to sacrifice money, to sacrifice success, to sacrifice more fame, because family mattered more. I don't know many of us are willing to make that trade. But what do we really want? We want to be happy. We want people like, like what do we really want in our life to be happy? I want people to sit at my table and laugh. That's what I want. I want to sit with the people I love and, and feel joy. I want to experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. I want to experience like people who actually believe in me who actually call out the best in me, who actually think I'm better than what I am. I want those people in my life calling out the best in me, encouraging me, loving on me, urging me on, sharpening me. I want to sit at the table with people who actually know my hurts and my wounds and my pain, and even though they see the real me, they choose to stay instead of turning away from it. Every single one of us, every single person in our culture, you go to any place in Poplar Bluff, everybody here is longing for a relational home that the church could be because we're better together than we are on our own. The third piece of good news is that we believe the gospel is still moving family to family. The story of Acts is this beautiful story of the church and the early church and how the people of God, the disciples, the apostles, just started taking Jesus' commands serious. When Jesus said, go create a family, they actually believed Jesus wanted them to go create a family. And so they started going from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There was this radical and amazing growth in the church. The church multiplied and grew in incredible ways. And if you cover up the names of the people who are doing the things in Acts, you would think it's Jesus, but it's not really Jesus. It's Jesus' disciples. They're just doing all the things that Jesus taught them to do. And what, A- what Acts repeats over and over and over again is households. In other words, for household would be what? Family. So from household to household. And so you see this household comes to know Christ. And then this household comes to know Christ. And then this family comes to know Christ. And then this family comes to know Christ. And And it's amazing because it's like when, when Christ shows up, when Jesus shows up on the scene, the whole family is blessed. When the presence of God is working and moving in our life, we actually don't just bless ourselves, we bless those who are at our table. When the power of God shows up in my life as an individual, the people who are around me get blessed by it. Like there's this security of this thing that's happening inside of me that actually blesses the people that are around me. When we get around the presence of God, the power of God, when we get around the spirit of God, there's a gravitas that goes with us. There's a weight that we carry. And the people around you get to rub up against the goodness that God is doing inside of you. It's beautiful. And so in Acts chapter 16, there's this story of Lydia. And it just says that Lydia is is a fashionista. She sells purple cloth. I don't know why purple cloth is a big deal, but apparently everybody wanted some big purple shirts in Rome that year. Like, purple was the style. And Lydia's doing great, and she's got all these women around her who are creating this purple cloth, and she's got this really successful business, and, and she comes in contact with the gospel, and she comes to know Christ, and her whole family and all the people that work for her come to know Christ. And then there's this little slave girl who comes in contact with Paul, and she comes to know Jesus. And everybody gets angry because as this little slave girl comes to know Jesus, she realizes her true identity and steps away from slavery. Slavery. And they're saying, like, everything's going to fall apart because slavery stopped and all these things are going to happen. And all of a sudden, Paul's thrown in prison. And as he's thrown in prison, he comes in contact with the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer freaks out because all of a sudden in the middle of the night, Paul's chains break and he thinks that he's gone. And the Philippian jailer says, I got to kill myself now because Rome's going to destroy me. And Paul says, don't do that. Come to know Jesus. And the Philippian jailer's like, hey, let's go eat tacos at my house. And they go to his house. And as they're eating tacos together, all the whole family of the Philippian jailers. Taylor come to know Jesus and you see this family after family after family. When one family takes serious the call of Jesus on their life, when one's family becomes brothers and sisters with another, another family is formed and another family is formed and another family is formed, family is formed until the whole world is reached by the gospel. Yes. Yes. And we get to be a part of it. We get to invite others to the table who haven't been there before. And say, there's a place for you at the table of God. He's prepared a place in the presence of what? Our enemies. There's a place that's already prepared. Like, we don't have to set the table. We don't have to get everything together. We don't have to figure everything out. Jesus has already prepared a place for us to sit with our enemies and invite them to be family again. And I'm exhausted and worn out by talking to pastors who are saying like, I don't know how to bring my family back together again. I don't know how to bring the church back together again. I don't know how to bring unity in disunity. I don't know how to bring the people who are angry with me or these people who believe this and these people who believe that together. And I keep telling them, the table's already prepared. Just sit with each other and be family again. Because the gospel will move from family to family to family, and there is great news that this is happening. I got to sit with some of your guys' leaders yesterday and hear the history of Westside. 1964 in a basement is where this church started. And since then, you guys have been meeting on these green pews for a really long time. And some of them you can tell. There's been, some, there's been some communion juice spilt on this one, right? You can tell that somebody was camped out there for a long time. I heard the stories of Miss Margaret and the heroes of your guys' community who, who, who fought for it. I, I heard the stories of people who said, I grew up in this church. I've been going to this church since I was a child. I've been here for a long time. And you look at the, the history, the 60-year history of this church. And I start to think, what if Westside created a new family that, 60 years from now, has stories of, I don't know, we started in a Kroger. (laughs) We started in this old abandoned warehouse. We started in somebody else's basement. We started by just eating tacos together. I don't know what the story's gonna be. But when we talk about the Grace family of churches, we've got seven churches in the Atlanta area, one in Washington, D.C., and many more that are forming and growing. Like, I just can't help but think about every family we start, every new birth of the Spirit means that 60 years from now, somebody's going to sit back and tell the stories of what we did so that this could happen. We get to be the founders of something. We get to be a part of building something that's actually going to stand for a long time. I loved all the little ones that have been running around here. Between services, there was like, 30 little kids running around and climbing and all wanted to play the drums. And as I look at that, I just think, these kids are going to grow up here. Some of them are going to stay here for a long time. 60 years from now, some of them are going to tell the story of the faithfulness of their mom and their dad. They're going to tell the faithfulness of their brothers and sisters. And so here's my good news for you today, Westside. Look around, like look around this room, do it awkwardly. Turn around and stare awkwardly at somebody beside you. Look around this room. This is your mother, this is your brother, this is your family. And as a visitor who's been here this weekend, it's a really great family. And so Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us to be your family. I pray that you would teach us to love and encourage and care for one another. I pray that you would teach us to lay down our lives for each other. I pray that you would teach us to forgive. That you teach us to disagree with grace and with love. That you teach us to lay aside our tiny differences so that we can do something significant together. And I pray that in this place, you will be glorified because this is your family. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would lead this church to love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and kindness and I pray that that love would flow out those red doors into the city of Poplar Bluff and I pray that there would be an outpouring of love that flows from this place we thank you Jesus for who you are we thank you for going to the cross we thank you for the resurrection we thank you for the family that you've given us So in your holy name we pray